Good morning, church. Glad you made it out this morning. For those of you that are in the room, this uh, week was just kind of that rude reminder we get every year of how much extra work it is just to get out of the house, right, to uh, clear the driveway and scrape the windshield and all of that, but I'm, I'm glad that uh, you made it out here this morning. Um, little family business before we go into the message. Um, this snowfall has made me extra excited to flee the country this coming week, and so uh, my family and I are headed to Arizona on Wednesday, and we're gone for just over two weeks, for three weekends, and uh, we're road tripping to Phoenix where we're joining Erica's family. Uh, we're going to be down there for um, just over a week in Phoenix, uh, celebrating American Thanksgiving, so we've been looking forward to that for a long time, and just so you know, I'll be away um, if you call me or text me, I won't respond because I'll be doing more important things like lounging by the pool and all of that. But um, uh, just uh, so you're aware, Daniel, the team, they're here available. If you have any needs over these couple of weeks, they're ready to uh, assist you. So anyway, we covet your prayers for health and safety as we make that trip down on Wednesday. Also just want to mention that uh, Nick and Daniel Matheson added a third girl to their family this week. So that's super exciting, and um, they actually made it out to church this morning. They were here in first service, and uh, with little Charlotte Rose. So having three girls is a good thing. I know that firsthand, so we're certainly celebrating uh, with them and their families that wonderful gift. All right, a number of years ago, I ran the Manitoba Half Marathon. I know some of you, you've done that. You actually ran the full marathon uh, I ran the half marathon. That was hard enough for me. Uh, I remember completing that. Didn't have a great time. I finished around the same time as like kind of 55 to 60-year-old women generally around me. And, uh, but I finished, and that was the goal. When I crossed that line, it was, uh, it was at, at the U of M. If you've done it, you know that uh, whether you're a half marathoner or a full marathoner, you begin together. And then at some point along the route, the half marathoners kind of take a, a turn off and they cut off uh, half the full marathon and join a little bit later and finish with the full marathoners, come into the stadium at the, at the U of M, do one lap of the track, then run through the finish line to great adulation. And uh, so I finished that, and then I went up into the stands to await the first male and female full marathoners because I wanted to witness them coming into the stadium and um, uh, winning. And so there I was in, in the stands when the, the announcer of the intercom system asked us to rise to our feet because the first female marathoner was about to enter the stadium. And so we all got up in anticipation, looked to the end, and, and we're all a little surprised when we saw this woman kind of enter the stadium and um, the, the, the claps slowed a little bit. We were a little confused because, I mean, to be, don't want to be rude, but the woman didn't necessarily have like an athletic form. Not someone you would expect to be the very first full marathoner. Okay, she did not have an athletic uh, uh, body or, or form, a, a running form. And, but she, we were clapping and she rounded the stadium, went through the finish line with the tape. They gave her the bouquet and the laurels and the, uh, the, the medal around her shoulders. And we all went home. And I remember, to my surprise, a couple days later discovering that she was stripped of her award because she had taken a wrong turn. She, in fact, had not won the race. She, uh, she had taken the wrong turn, 
And even though she had registered for the full marathon, had run the half marathon, and was one of the slowest half marathoners. And so uh, I imagine to her great shame, she had this award taken from her because in spite of all of her effort and all of that sweat and everything she did, which was real, she ran the wrong race right? and didn't receive the award. And so as I was planning for the sermon this morning, that story kind of came back to me and reminded me of this story that Jesus told that we've been in over the last few weeks, a story that has, has become known in Christian circles as the parable of the prodigal son, a story that many of you will know very well. My Bible calls it the parable of the lost son, which I think is a reference to that younger son in the story you just heard, right? That young son that demanded his share of his father's estate so he could go off and do whatever he wanted, and he did. And he squandered it all, this lost son. But, but really, as we're going through this story and looking at each character in this story and finishing this series uh, this morning by looking at the elder the son, the older brother, we find that this is not really just a story about a lost son. This is a, a story about two lost sons. This elder brother who is dutiful, who lives a moral life, Jesus will show us is just as lost as his younger brother. In fact, maybe he's even more lost, more alienated from the father than his younger brother was. So there's this feast, right? This younger brother comes home, the father throws this great feast, and if you kind of have been uh, uh, in the Gospels enough and you've read the Bible, Old and New Testament, you might know that one of the most common pictures of the kingdom of God, the most common kind of analogies of the kingdom of God is this feast in the house of God, and so, we see this feast in this story which represents the kingdom of God. It represents inclusion in the kingdom. It represents acceptance from God, receiving His love, receiving being in His favor and living with Him. That's what this feast represents. And yet, here at the end of this story, we find something shocking. We find, to our irony, that the one who never left home is the one who is the lost son. The one who never left home finds himself the son who's on the outside of the feast. The story ends without an ending. The story ends with the father going out to this elder son and imploring him to come in to the feast. And then it ends. We don't know what he does. It has no ending. Will he join the feast? Or will he stay on the outside? You know, the story is, is, is not actually about the prodigal son, you know, that one that ran away and came back. The story is actually about this elder son. You probably haven't read it that way. That's not the way I used to read it, right? Like I thought, well, he's kind of like just a secondary character. He would maybe get the Oscar for supporting actor, but not like the, like the Oscar for the actor, best actor, right? He's a secondary character. But no, what Jesus shows us is this is actually a story primarily about the lostness of the elder brother. He's the true lost son in this story. See, Jesus was addressing elder brothers, 
He was addressing people that were known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you may know, were kind of the religious class of the day, right? They were the ones that just strictly adhered to the laws of God, the, the religious leaders. And Jesus tells this story in, in response to a situation he found. We see this at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. It says that now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. You know, Jesus was attracting all sorts of people. Good people, bad people, they were all coming to him. And the Pharisees saw this. So it says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. He's accepting and welcoming people like that. Jesus hears their muttering. He sees their hearts. And so he tells them this story. And what he's doing is he's showing them what true lostness, what true alienation from God looks like, and it doesn't look anything like they thought it looked like. I mean, the Pharisees thought that lostness looked like the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people that went out and lived a wild life, wildly immoral, no regard for God, no regard for God's laws, doing whatever their appetites wanted. Those were the lost people, the Pharisees thought, the people that... Uh, Sought, sought to find fulfillment in what we might call self-discovery, right? Like just, just living to satisfy all of their desires. They were people that were guided by desire. They thought they would find fulfillment in satisfying every desire they had. And the Pharisees thought those are the lost people. And they were the opposite of that. They were not lost people, the Pharisees, because they didn't live like that. They lived the opposite of that. They followed God's law to the T, these people. And I mean the T. Like Jesus will show us elsewhere that these Pharisees, like they were so concerned that they wouldn't shortchange the tithe, giving God a tenth of all of their income, all of their produces. They would actually harvest their garden herbs and separate them and weigh them on a scale to make sure that right down to the fraction of the gram, they would give 10% of their dill and their cumin to the Lord. Like, I mean, they were someone who followed God's law to a T. They were the definition of moral people, good people, or so they thought. And yet, Jesus shows them in the story, they are just as lost as the younger brothers. You see, if the younger brother tried to find fulfillment through self-discovery, being guided by their desires, the elder brother, he tried to find fulfillment through what we might call moral conformity, through obeying his father's rules. They were people not guided by their desires. They maybe suppressed their desires. They were guided by duty. They were guided by duty moral living. And I don't know if that's like a firstborn thing. Is there something to this whole birth order thing? I think there is. Erica shows me these TikToks. If you, know, you know, if you don't know what a TikTok is, lucky you, right? This whole, like, this whole birth order thing, she shows me these, uh, these little videos profiling like the firstborn, the middleborn, the young. And I'm like, that's my family. That's my family. Like my oldest, Annika, she is the dutiful one. She's someone like it's very, she will study. She will not break the rules. And then, eh, I won't tell you about the others. But I wonder if this is just like a bit of a, um, a personality thing, a birth order sort of thing. Here the elder brother is guided not by desire, he's guided by 
duty. And yet what Jesus is going to show us here is they have the same heart. They're actually, they're actually no different. They find two different ways of trying to get the same thing, actually. I mean, why won't this elder brother go into the feast? Why won't he go? Well, his father comes out to him and says, son, like, come and join us to celebrate. He says, look, dad, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. Look at what I've done for you all of these years. I've always obeyed you. And yet this son who did none of that, you're just going to throw him a party? What are you going to give me? We discover here, like what's going on? We discover that the elder brother's service to his father was not motivated by love for his father. It was not motivated by a desire to please, to bring joy to his father, to honor his father. No, his duty was a way to get something from his father. He had the mindset, if I just live life good enough, if I just follow the, new, the, the rules well enough, I will get what I want from my dad. And, and this, is, this is the mindset that says good living will lead to a good life. Good moral living will lead to a good life. Let's call this the religious moralistic mindset, right? Like if the younger brother represents like those that have a worldly mindset, just going and, and fulfilling all of their desires, then this is kind of the flip side of that. This is like a religious mindset. Religious people live moral, dutiful lives, but their goal in obedience to God's law, their goal in their good works is to get leverage over God. It's actually to get something from Him, to get leverage over Him. It's an attempt to actually control God so that you put God in your debt. So God is obligated because of, your, because of your good living, obligated to give you what it is that you truly want. To put God in a position where you think that He owes you. That's what's happening here with this elder brother. And you know what? It's the same heart. At, at, at the end of the day, it was a selfish heart. He just did it in a different way than the younger brother. He thought, man, if, if I just live good enough, you know, like if, if, I, if I pray enough, if I go to church enough, if I'm generous, if I'm a good enough neighbor, then my kids are going to turn out good. You know, if, if, I, if I'm just generous enough and I'm a good steward, steward with, my, with my possessions, then I'm going to end up getting a good job. You know, like if I volunteer enough, if I serve God faithfully enough, I'm going to live a good, long, happy, fulfilling, prosperous life. Isn't that kind of what religion is? Like, that's the definition of religion. I will do what God wants me to do so that He will give me what I want to have. That's religion. And yeah, in the world, there's all sorts of different forms of that, but at the end of the day, that's religion. I will follow the rules, and then God will get me what I want. I mean, when you see all these little idols, Buddhas or whatever, isn't that what it, isn't that what it means? Like, when they, bring, when they bring food and leave it there, right, little, little gifts to the gods, acts of service. What is it? It's about maybe then I'll get pregnant. If I just do enough for God, show my devotion, then I'll get the thing that I really want. I'll get a child. It's about getting what 
I want. When, when I was in Mongolia years ago, I was a 15-year-old in Mongolia, one thing I noticed that everywhere you go, all the crossroads, there's these pile of rocks. And I said, like, what are these rocks all about? Well, I guess they're in kind of Mongolian religion. Whenever they come across this pile of rocks, they have to walk around it in a certain direction, add a rock to the pile, uttering some sort of sequence of words, some prayer to, to the spirits. And then they need... And then they need to add a little gift to the pile of rocks. So if you would look in that pile of rocks, you would see little paper bills, money shoved in the cracks of the rocks. You would find cigarettes poked in there because I guess the gods love to smoke. I don't... Or maybe that's just all someone had to show, like to give to them. You would find all these little gifts in there. And what was it? It was an attempt, right, to curry God's favor so that he might give me what I want or if it's an evil spirit to keep them at bay so that something bad doesn't happen to me. If I do enough good, bad won't happen to me. That's religion. And Jesus says, if that's your way of thinking, you are just as lost as the younger brother. If you seek to control God with your obedience then your goodness, your morality is at the, at, at the end of the day, it's just another way of getting what it is you truly want. Not necessarily getting God Himself, loving God Himself, but getting something from Him. It's a means of control. I came across this story, again, it speaks to this. It says, once, a time, once upon a time, there was a gardener who, threw in an, who uh, grew an enormous carrot He took it to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. So he turned, uh, so as he turned to the king, the king said, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said, my, if if that's what you get for a carrot, what would the king give for something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or will ever breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. See the difference? Why do you do the good? Is it to get something, the thing you want from God, the one who can give it to you? That was the mindset of the elder brother. He obeyed to get things, not to get God himself, not out of love for what the Father had done for him, but to get things for himself. That was the motivation of his obedience. There was a, it's an imagined story. It doesn't actually come from the Gospels, but I think it, it's, uh, it's insightful. It speaks of Jesus with his disciples He calls his disciples to him and he says, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any other explanation. So the disciples looked around for a stone to carry and Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulations on weight and size. Sounds like something I might do. 
So he put it in his pocket, this little stone. Then Jesus said, follow me. He led them on a journey, and around noontime, everyone, he had everyone sit down, and Jesus waved his hands over all the stones, and they turned to bread. And he said, now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up, and he said to them again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time, Peter said, aha, I get it. So he looked around, then he saw a small boulder, and he hoisted it on his back, and it was painful, and it made him stagger, but he said, I can't wait for supper. Jesus then said, follow me. He led them on a journey with Peter barely able to keep up. And around supper time, Jesus led them to the side of a river. And then he said, now everyone throw your stones into the water. And they did. And then he said, follow me. And he began to walk. And Peter looked around dumbfounded. Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who were you, fo- who were you carrying the stone for? Why do you obey? You see, I think we misunderstand what sin is. We think sin is just bad things that go against God's law. Mm, that's, that's, that's part of it. It's way deeper than that. Sin isn't just simply breaking rules. Sin is trying to be your own Savior and Lord by displacing God's rightful authority over your life. And there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord, Jesus shows in this story. You can be your own Savior and Lord by breaking all the moral rules in order to do whatever it is you want, or you can become your own Savior and Lord by keeping all of the rules in order to get from God what you want. But either way, it's the same thing. It's an attempt to be your own Savior and Lord, to displace God's rightful authority over your life. You see, neither son in this story loved the father for the father himself, but only what they could get from the father. And you know what that means? That means that you can rebel against God by doing good works. That means you can rebel against God by never breaking his law. Yes, you can rebel against God by by breaking his rule like the younger brother, or you can rebel against God by keeping all of God's rules diligently and using careful obedience to God's law as a strategy for rebelling against God by using your duty, using your good life to try to control God, to put Him in your debt so that you will get the thing that you want from Him. Neither son really loved the father. And so for this elder brother, and we ought not to miss this, in this story, because this is actually what the story's all about. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the elder brothers. What Jesus is saying is that it's not just the things you do wrong that become a barrier to God. For the elder brother, it was their good works that became a barrier. It was his good works that kept him on the outside of the feast instead of going in and being included and knowing God's acceptance and knowing God's love and joy and life with him. It was his good works that were the barrier. You know, I, I, I really think that it's harder for these, these elder brother types, maybe harder for them to see their own lostness than it is for the younger brothers. You know, the ones who live wild living and they see how different it is to the good life that God may call us to. 
And it's maybe more obvious that difference. But elder brothers, they can be blind to their lostness and alienation from God because their moral living can be a kind of a believable counterfeit to true righteousness, to true right relationship with God. Because when you suggest to someone uh, whose, whose relationship with God is, is not right, an elder brother, they might say, how dare you say that? I'm at church every time the doors are open. I'm there every time the doors are open. And I give this. And I volunteered that. And I never do that. I live a good life. And yet, underneath all of it, is this religious mindset, which is, if I do enough of that, God will need to give me this. It will lead to this sort of life. And these elder brothers, they, they can be blind to their own condition. They can kind of fool themselves. And I, and I think, you know, the, 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 the pews of churches all over the world are populated with elder brothers who have this form of goodness, but not true righteousness obeying for their own sake, not for the sake of loving God. What are some signs that someone might have the elder brother spirit? Well, just a few things briefly. I mean, if, if when life doesn't go your way, some hardship comes into your life, and you find yourself deeply disappointed in God, maybe even angry and bitter towards God, like sometimes really angry towards God, how dare you, God, I did this. I sacrificed, I gave, I tried my best, and now you allow this to happen to me? What is that? That's the elder brother spirit, right? I'm good, and then God owes me good. I've kept my side of the bargain, God, now you have to keep yours. And maybe you found yourself thinking that sort of way. And maybe we all do from time to time. When something hard comes into our life, like, I've given so generously, and now I lose my job. What's up with this, God? And that guy over there who lives a wanton life without regard for you, he's unaffected? He didn't cancer? Well, shouldn't he get cancer? Why do I get cancer? I'm the one that devotes my life serving you. If you find yourself deeply disappointed or angry in God because of some hard thing that has befallen you, maybe that's a sign of the elder brother spirit. Or, or maybe if it's you, you compare yourself to other people because elder brothers, they take pride in their moral superiority. And people who take pride in their moral superiority always have to show and be seen to be better, morally superior to other people. So they're always trying to make distinctions like the Pharisees, not trying to affiliate with someone to show that we're all alike, but that we are different, we are better, we are above. And so you see this mindset in the elder brother here. You see this pride that he had in his own duty, his dutifulness, his own moral living. Even the way he addresses his brother, it says in verse 30, when he gets angry at his dad, he says, but when this son of yours, what does he call his brother? When he's talking to his father, this son of yours, dad, who has squandered your property and you kill the fattened calf for him and see what his father does a few verses later. He addresses his elder son and says, son, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, what do you mean the son of mine? This brother of yours, he belongs to you. You are one and the same. So maybe having this kind of comparative spirit, this pride in one's own moral superiority, that's poison to faith. 
faith in God. Maybe, maybe another sign of an elder brother's spirit is, is if your prayers are just chock full of recitations of prayers, of uh, petitions and requests from God. You ever actually just analyze your prayers? Like, what does your prayer life look like? When you pray, like, is it like 99% God, would you do this? God, would you do that? God, could you make sure that doesn't happen? God, could you give me this? God, could you do that for that person? But, but maybe lacking in just kind of spontaneous, joyful praise of God. If all it is is just requests and petitions, maybe that's a sign of an elder brother's spirit that what you're doing in your good, dutiful living is actually not done for God's sake, but for your sake. What is the solution to the elder brother's spirit? Well, Jesus shows us it's true repentance. Now, when we think of repentance, we normally think that it's like saying sorry for the bad things I've done. And that's only one side of it. Repentance is not just from our bad things when we have broke God's law, but, but, but it, it, we need to repent from all the good that we did for the wrong reasons. All of our efforts are striving to be dutiful, to be moral, to be righteous, and putting our, our, our hope in that, treating that as the basis of our relationship with God. To, to repent says, I'm not just repenting of the bad things, I'm, I'm repenting of all the good things that I did for the purpose of trying to get something from you, God. I repent of my righteousness, not just my sin, not just my error. That's true repentance. That's what you need to do to become a Christian. This is how Tim Keller puts it, a well-known author, pastor. He says, to truly become Christian means we must repent of the reasons we ever did anything right to repent of the very roots of our righteousness and to admit we've put our ultimate hope and trust in things rather than in God. So the elder brother has to repent just like the younger. And here's what I love. The father's love for the elder brother is the same as his love for the younger brother. God loves everyone with the same love. You remember when God ran out to the younger brother? As, as, he, as the younger brother was coming back, hoping to be accepted in some way. Remember how the father ran out and didn't even wait for the apology? He just wanted to lavish his love and his grace on his kid, and he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he put that robe on him, and he brought him into this great feast. Well, the father's love for the elder brother to the religious moral one is no different. It's the same because we find here this feast is going, and there's this great party, and the father's in his party, and he sees his other son is gone. Where is he? He's not in the feast, and so the father leaves the party. He goes out to find the elder son. Who, where is he? We don't know. He's moping about in the field somewhere, pouting, right? He goes out to him, and he finds his son, and he pleads with the son to come into the feast. The father goes out to him as well in order to bring him in. And I think what Jesus is showing us that even the most religious, moral people need the initiating grace of God. It's not just bad people that needs God's grace. It's good people. It's good people that just as much need the grace of God to let go of all of their goodness, to let go of all of their efforts as the means by which they will secure something from God just to let go and to receive God's grace. That's the only way into the feast, Jesus says. 
The only way in is the grace of God. Our hearts need to be converted by God's grace. The father goes out to his sons, to the younger brother and the elder brother in that story. And how does God come out to us? How does God come out to us to bring us into this feast of his love and his favor? Well, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Whoever would believe, whoever would trust in his one true son, Jesus, would be brought into and welcomed, included into the feast, which is the kingdom of God, which is that place of perfect love and acceptance and life with God eternally. Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And so God comes to us through His Son Jesus all the way, and He takes on flesh, and He lives that perfectly righteous life that you or I could not live, and He does it out of perfect love for His Father. And then he dies on the cross in your place and in my place to pay our debt to God, the debt not only of our sin, but the debt of all of our putting our trust in our own goodness to be right with God. And he paid for all of our debt and he rose from the dead, conquering the power in sin and death so that he might make a way into the feast, a way into relationship with God eternally, a way that we could take simply by putting our faith in Him. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. He says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, as if you could get anything from God by living good enough, he says, you need to let go of all of your efforts to be good enough from God so that your hands are open to receive the one thing that you need, that everyone needs, which is the grace of God, which God extends to us through His Son, Jesus, which we receive when we take that trust that we were putting in our own goodness and we put that faith fully in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, trusting in Him and His work on our behalf. And then... And then we will live this good life, but we won't live, we won't do the good works to get something from God to curry His favor. We will receive the favor of God through faith in Jesus. It is ours to, to have and never to lose through faith in His Son, and that will so change us so that we will now live a life that is pleasing to God because we love God, because God is our highest treasure. God is our joy. What Jesus is saying is our good works don't elicit the Father's love. It's His love that elicits our goodness as a response to His love. Our works don't change God. His work changes us. And that's what people here in a few minutes that are going to be baptized, that's what they're professing in their baptism. It's not a way of saying, God, this is what I'm doing for you. This is how much you matter to me. This is how much I'm going to serve you. No, it's when they go into the water and they go all the way down and they come all the way up, it's their way of saying, Christ, when you died and when you rose again, you secured my forgiveness and, and you secured my life. And when I put my faith in you, Jesus, I have that new life. Not because of my efforts, but what Jesus has done for me. That's what that means when they go all the way under and come all the way up. 
that Jesus in his death and resurrection secured God's grace, his forgiveness, his acceptance of me fully and finally. And so, God, I'm just surrendering my whole life to you. Not to get anything else from you. I already have all I need in you. But just as an act of love that I will serve you because I love you. That's what this baptism you're about to see here represents. So to be found by God, to be saved, means to let go of our efforts to get something from God and just to receive by God's grace His inclusion, His love. And you're going to hear the stories in a moment of a few people who have done that, who have made that decision. And it involves a decision, right? Because this story ends without an ending. What's going to happen? Will the elder brother go in? Or will the elder brother stay out? What's going to happen? But there's a reason there's no ending to this story, and that's because you are the ending, right? You are the ending to this story. What will you choose? Will you choose to try your hardest to be your best, the best you can be, so that you can get what you want from God ultimately? Or will you recognize God's love for you expressed in Jesus and let go of all of your efforts to try to secure something from Him and just receive His grace through repentance and faith in His Son, Jesus? You know, I wonder if some of you need to make that decision today because, like I said before, church pews can be full of elder brothers. They look the part, but they don't have the right heart. Good people, moral people, religious people, dutiful people, lost people. God wants us to live by His grace. It's His grace that transforms our hearts. So I wonder this morning if, if any of you, like you might find yourself needing to be converted, receiving the grace of God, or maybe needing to be reconverted. Maybe you find yourself in some way disappointed by God because of something that has or hasn't happened in your life that you thought ought to have happened, right? And maybe you just need to be reconverted in your heart to God and just say, God, I belong to you. You are the greatest thing I can have. So I just want to invite you into a moment to consider where you are in this story. There's going to be this prayer up on the screen. Maybe some of you need to pray this prayer. Like this is the sort of prayer that an elder brother would need to pray. If someone was an elder brother just trying to like, you know, secure their life by their own, by just being good enough to get something, to be right with God, this is a prayer that they might need to pray. God, I repent of trying to use my goodness to earn your favor. I let go of my efforts and I receive your love and grace by trusting fully in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I will follow you not to get what I want, but because you are what I want. Can I invite you into a moment of prayer just to consider where you might be in this story, how God might be speaking to you into this story? I'm just going to give you a minute if you want to bow your head and just just reflect on that. Have a conversation with God. What is it that He wants from you and what is it that He has for you? Where are you in this story? What do you need to say to God?
Father God, your love is indiscriminate. We're reminded again this morning, God, that um, you love the whole world, which means you love everyone in this room, and you love everybody that everyone in this room knows. Lord, and you invite everyone to know what it is to be around that table with you in that place of feasting, that place of total forgiveness where there's no guilt and shame, that place of acceptance, that place of love and joy, to have that eternal life that we were created to have with you. We thank you, God, that in your love for us, you went all the way. Your son Jesus did it all so that we might receive this new life, not by our efforts to be good enough, but we might just receive it by faith in your son. We thank you, God, for your grace which is what every one of us needs, whether we're an elder brother or whether we're a younger brother. Lord, I just pray that you would transform our hearts by your grace. Um, Lord, and just uh, give us the ability to let go of whatever we need to let go of and just have open hands to receive the grace that comes through your Son to be in that place with you, God, to be in that feast. Now, as uh, our brothers and sisters come up here to kind of share their stories of your work at their life, I just pray that you would be pleased in what it is you're about to see and hear. In Jesus' name, amen.